You're listening to Making a Difference About Domestic Violence and Abuse with host Shereen Rice on the CWR Talk Network. Good evening, this is Shereen Rice with Making a Difference About Domestic Violence. My goal for this show is to educate and help in a healing journey for those that are suffering from domestic abuse. If you'd like to call in, this is live, so you can, and it's 917-889-8078. If you're listening tonight and would like to get in touch with me, you're more than welcome to email me at shereencwr at gmail.com. Let me spell that out for you, S-H-A-R-E-E-N-E-C-W-R at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd like to remind everyone that our show is every Thursday night now at 6 p.m. Pacific, 7 Mountain, 8 Central. My show can also be heard on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, uh, and we've recently added iHeartRadio if you subscribe to those services. If you want direct links to those services, you may go to our CWR homepage on the website cwrtalknetwork.com and click on the logo for that service. If at any time you experience a trigger by this topic, please call the national hotline 1-800-799-SAFE, 1-800-799-7233. This topic may be triggering. We will be talking about domestic violence uh, towards children and adults. We'll also be talking about the tools that abusers use. So... It's a possibility, uh, and so definitely use that hotline if you need it. And we'll be right back for our public service announcement. Did you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel, and a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me. Whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back to Making a Difference About Domestic Violence and Abuse with your host, Shereen Rice, on the CWR Talk Network. Welcome back. This is Shereen Rice with Making a Difference About Domestic Violence. My guest tonight is Sandy. Now, this is not her real name, but um, I go by aliases from time to time. I was talking to her a few days ago, and we were talking about her domestic violence experience. One thing I noticed while we were talking about that is not only did it start at a very young age, but it also showed a lot of uh, tools that abusers use. Um, while I was talking to her. So I'd like to point those out while we talk, so I will be interrupting her from time to time, so that you can um, identify, uh, or I can identify what those tools are, and you can be uh, enlightened, okay? So my guest tonight, Sandy. Hi. How are you? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Excellent. Hey, girlfriend. Um, so we were talking about um, your abuse. As a, uh, what, about what age did that start? Why don't you just share it with us there? Start there. Um, my first recollection of it, I was somewhere between 
18 months to two and a half years old. It was right in that age range. Wow. Okay, and who was your perpetrator? Um, I had a cousin. And what was his age? He is approximately 11 years older than me, 12 years older than me. So at 18 months, he started... It started started somewhere between... um, the, the memories that I have, I'm able to associate it based off of where I was living right. um, and, and all of that. So the memories that I have where I was living at the time and where they were living at the time, it was sometime after 18 months and around two, two and a half years is in that range is the best I can give you. Yeah. Okay. And like and- I said, he's about 11 years older than me. Right, so he was probably 12 or 13 or 14 when he started perpetrating. Yes. Yeah, okay, so that is isn't that is old enough to re, uh, to start perpetrating for sure. Um, sometimes it starts younger than that, but you wouldn't know that because you weren't around. But anyway, um, and, and we've discussed this um, before that um, abuse is a learned behavior, but sometimes... Were you trying to say it comes naturally or genetically? It might even become genetic because of the fact that behavior can be genetic. Um, but uh, continue on. What kind of abuse did he inflict? So the, the abuse inflicted um, consistently until I was about five and a half, six years old is when it finally Got he got caught and it was um, molesting. Um, sexual, it it was, was sexual abuse. Yes, yes. Oh, that's horrible. Um, and yeah. go ahead. No, I, so and I just want to make it clear: it it, it wasn't rape, but there was um, different forms of uh, sodomy type yeah. uh, stuff. That's still sexual. Anything with the genitals yes. is sexual abuse. Um, yes. Okay. Most so, of it was with his own hands, but there, uh, to my knowledge, there was there was at some point that uh, an object that had been used when I was in that towards the very end of that the the nonstop. Every time I would be around him, it would happen. Um, and like and you I hated said, being around it, him, it, right? Um, actually, um. When I was that young, I didn't hate being around him. He made it feel like it was just a game, and I thought he was really cool because it was an older person who was wanting to spend time with me. Um, The stranger danger feeling didn't start establishing until I was um, after it was my grandparent who um, walked in on him when we were we were on a bike ride and I had to quote unquote earn my ride on the bike that he was giving me a ride on um, and this was like late 80s early 90s time frame when this was happening um, and so it was like super common where you you know you just popped somebody on the front seat of the bike or you know pegs on the back or whatever and yeah. they caught him with his hands down my pants um, and at that point, my grandparents um, immediately did what they could. But back then, 
it was a different society and and so so they they stopped him from what he was what they saw him doing and they helped him get into um counseling um, okay. there was an investigation that took place with child protective services uh come to find out that there was seven victims that I'm aware of. Mm. Um, some of them were his sisters. Some of them were just mutual cousins of ours that were victims. And those are the ones that I'm aware of. Okay. And can I um, add this in when there's a sexual yeah. perpetrator, usually there's more than one victim. Um, they don't usually stop at one and they usually don't get caught at one either. They become right. a, usually a little bit more sneaky, and it sounds like riding a bike around he is a little bit sneaky, but um, good thing that your grandparents caught him for sure. Yes. So, but, uh, and, and I, I can't speak, of course, in behalf of any of the other victims that I've learned, later learned to find out that they were also victimized by him, but I know that I wasn't ever given any counseling or therapy growing up, it wasn't until I hit into my 30s that I started addressing therapy for all different forms of abuse that I had experienced throughout my life, and, and one of them being the, the sexual. And that's one that I'm still in recovery from, um, barely addressing it. It causes you to kind of relive everything. Right. And, and the repressed memories start to come back. Right. Right. And do you know if the other victims were put into counseling at any point in time? To my knowledge, I don't think any one of them have. If they have, it's something that um, they have not shared with uh, Mm -hmm. others. Um, See that my grandparent came from uh, uh, how do I say My grandpa was a retired World War II vet. So they came from an era where you family matters stay between family, and you don't discuss certain things. It is just hush, hush, quiet, quiet. So right. for my grandpa to go against what he was raised in, that kind of culture, to even put my cousin into counseling is phenomenal. Yeah, because so, I think but, that culture was basically uh, take him out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it was that. And if, it, if there was a family, a family affairs that were happening, didn't matter what kind of kinds of abuse, it was it's their business. You stay out of it. No, I mean take out the person that's abusing the right. other person. Right. It was they did they, they did one of two things. You know, they didn't they and they didn't discuss with the victims the stuff that happened. Um, right. There wasn't the education there to right. help the victims. Right. And abuse uh, just. So I'm sure everybody's aware, but in the 80s, it wasn't really well known. It was just starting to be discussed. Um, actually, in America, it started to be discussed a little bit. Or, or There was actually just a home for women who were abused in Minnesota, and that was pretty much the only place. They did start to um, develop more than that. But in the 80s, you didn't really talk about it, and you're right. When it was a family situation or a family dynamic of, you know, it's it's just let's take care of the perpetrator. The victim will be fine. Yep. And, and I, I've never, 
part of part of grieving one of the grieving processes is like anger and blame um Mm -hmm. and my my grieving process that I've had you know over time with this and it definitely hit a lot more when I finally spoke up about it and addressed it with therapy um but I've never had any anger or resentment towards my grandparents because they were above their time considering the culture that they were raised in they I don't I don't hold any anger or upset feelings towards them not seeking for help from me too they thought I was young enough that I would outgrow it and I would overcome it and that's fine but the problem is during family functions because our grandparents weren't raising me or the cousin who was the one who was hurting others the family functions he still was around and I was still exposed to him so um and, and I didn't get the therapy I needed so right it didn't and it did didn't it, ever get what go ahead did he continue to perpetrate um after that there was a long break um of where there was no inappropriate touching um he didn't start contacting me inappropriately even though I didn't necessarily immediately recognize it at first mm-hmm. when I was younger um because mm-hmm. like I said remember he he and I are about 11 years apart right um and and that's a huge age difference when you're children so in my early 20s um we started to hang out regularly like best friends would um and um he would flirt with me a lot and I didn't know I thought it was just complimentary or being playful I didn't understand or comprehend the red flags that I do now if that makes sense right well so he was kind of like now that I've been getting therapy I'm able to recognize the red flags of oh my gosh, he was re-grooming me or he was reconditioning me, testing boundaries, testing waters to see what either I remember or how far he can get away with it again. Right. And so how did he start re-grooming you? How did he start, How did, did he groom you? Okay, so in the start, he started grooming you, making it like playful. And and a lot of times abusers will say, oh, that was just a joke. Well, number one, it's not just a joke. Uh, and they're not mm-hmm. kidding. And, yes, they will do it again. Or, you know, I was just kidding. I, yeah, I love it when they say that. I was just kidding or that was just a joke. That means right. they're not taking any the accountability kind of for comment. their Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's how it just started was, oh, we were just playing a game, and right. I think you're really cute, and let's play together. Yeah. So when I was younger, there was never, and people need to understand also, when I was younger, it wasn't ever like this aggressive, forceful, put your hand over your mouth and just do what he wanted. It mm-hmm. was made to appear like we were just having fun and it was a game. Right. Um, but he would always tell me if I asked if I could go on a, a bike ride or if I could go join and play with him and the older kids or whatever, he'd always just look at me and say, you know, it just got to a point where it's so common that it would be him just saying, um, 
of course we can, but you know what you got to do. You know what deal we've, we've made. Oh. And the deal was that the deal was I would do show and tell for him and let him touch. Oh, okay. So, so there was a so lot I had of a, kind of in my mind, it was I had to earn my my right to hang out with my cool cousin. That's right. the mentality I had at that age. Manipulation. Yes. Yeah, on his part. Um, as an adult, um, because I didn't get the education um, and the healing of red flags um, and stuff like that, and because how the entire family dynamic dealt with it in a way of we don't talk to the victims about it, and we, you know, it's just not a, a subject to be talked about. Right. I didn't realize how insane and crazy it was that I was still hanging out with this person who had hurt me as a child. Yeah. And then when he would make mild passes at me or we would do a family big photo with all of us cousins together or even the aunts and uncles and grandparents in the photo, he would every single time pull me aside away from everybody else and say, I just want a picture with you too. And he didn't do that with the others, like with the other aunts and uncles that he did with me and that's kind of where it started slowly happening again as an adult actually you know um, why you do that to, please tell me um it's because what they do is they'll use those pictures to soothe themselves if you know what i mean masturbate yeah mm-hmm. and that's why because you reminded him of sexual activity and he wanted yeah. to continue that at home when you weren't around correct um, and in my mentality, you know, as I got older and you, you hear society say thing, things are not okay, but I was also raised in a, in a, in a Christian based home where people are, people can repent and people can overcome their demons. And so the things that I had been exposed to by him, I just naturally trusted that um, he had he was repenting he, that right. he was re- that he had already repented, mm-hmm. you know, and I did know that he had some community service and counseling that he had to do for um, uh, after he had been caught and then multiple cousins had had been interviewed by child protective services, um, and so I just had thought you know he did that to society. And he repented with God. So, you know, he's repented. Um, and so we had, we would hang out a lot. And, and it kind of felt like very similar of kind of slowly going back to the time frame of, you know, about two years old, if somewhere about late five years, early six years old time frame of where it was very consistent. Um mm-hmm. I have zero memories by the time I hit seven until um, adulthood where he started, you know, being a little bit more touchy filly again and asking for extra pictures where it was just me. Um, And then when social media hit really big in technology, he had, I still had not gotten help or addressed these issues um, with professionals. And he had, sent me a couple of times messages um, saying that he had had inappropriate dreams of me. 
Um, and the first couple times that he said it, he just said, oh, my gosh, I had a crazy, dirty dream with you in it. Or I just had a dream about you, about, uh, with you in it. And then it was like a bunch of M's meaning, mm, and that was it. And uh, I just thought, well, that's weird, but I guess we can't control our dreams. I've certainly had dreams that I've woken up the next day and thought, that was weird. So yeah. I didn't necessarily respond or bite. Too. Yeah, right. yeah. And, and I didn't bite onto that that carrot, if you if you you know, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, um, and then to groom you again. <laughs> right, and I didn't recognize that that's what was happening. Now, let me share um, with you something. You said ahead, you felt please. that he was one of the cool guys when you were younger. Yes. So you had those feelings yes. of, yay, this cool guy is yes. paying attention to me. And you loved that because we as women, we love that. We love it when guys Absolutely. pay attention to us, especially cool ones. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so um, when he stopped, when he got caught, that doesn't mean he stopped. It means he got a little bit more uh, better at hiding it. But anyway, so we're at the point where now this cool cousin is now mm-hmm. re- coming back to you, and you're thinking, oh, there's nothing big about the pictures. He's done nothing to me, and my cool right. cousin is paying attention to me again. Now, was this after a divorce or anything or a breakup or anything? Say that again. Was this after a divorce that he contacted you or after a breakup on your part? Um, actually it was on his part. He went through a divorce when he started regularly calling me and I was in my early twenties. That plan, when he got through his divorce, he would call me all the time. And I got, I just thought it was really odd that mm-hmm. my cousin, that we lost private contact for 10 years or so, mm-hmm. um, started reaching out to me a lot. And then he moved back to Utah because the the marriage brought him out of state. And so then after the divorce was finalized, he came back to Utah where I lived. And then we started hanging out regularly again. And I still put him on this pedestal that he was really cool. So he like taught me how to drive a stick shift. And we went, um, you know, he would take interest in things that I had interest in at first. I used to love to go running. So he'd go running with me and he taught me running techniques and he already knew I was interested in rock climbing. So he took me rock climbing. And so he was like the cool cousin. He was the cool person who was older, already had experience. And so he was, I felt like he was just mentoring me into adulthood. Yeah. He liked um, everything you did. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and of, then when a after, lot of abusers do the same. a lot of abusers do the same. They they yeah, become so, they become what you would like them to be really. Okay, go ahead. I'm right. Sorry. Um, and then um, after I got divorced is when it the the comments of the dreams started coming to me. Um. So yes, there was times that things did happen. It's just the relationship of us regularly hanging out started as soon as we went through his divorce. And then after I got divorced is when he started, you know, telling me, you know, I just had a really weird dream about you or, oh, my gosh, I had a dirty, nasty dream about you. Hold mm-hmm. on real quick. I apologize. My daughter just Definitely. got out of her room. Hey, sweetheart, look at me. I'm on an important phone call. I need you to go lay down. <laughs> Thank you. They only, they only want you when you're on the phone. 
<laughs> it happens. I know. I know. They're so good. And I've been, you know, I've been on your show a few different times and it's only happened one other time where I've had an interruption. And with these type of subjects that we have, I don't have them in hearing distance of kids. And so as soon as I hear pitter patter, I have to apologize and stop for a minute. But no, no, I don't I've now quietly walked outside. Yes. Uh, it's I not appropriate for children either. to hear that. Yeah. No. Exposure is not okay. No. So, so you made the right side. <laughs> um, okay, so he contacted you at, at your most vulnerable part in life after your divorce or after your separation and yes. started saying things that um, were, again, starting to condition or recondition because he's already conditioned you several times. Yeah, it was it was just random little comments of, you know, dreams. Or he invited me to go do activities. Um, and when I found out that if I found out that the activities he was inviting me to didn't have his current, his new wife, his second wife coming to them, that's when I started feeling like, "Mm, I don't think that's a good idea. So I didn't go to activities that he would invite me to, but I got invited to go boating with him alone. I got invited to go do, you know, other activities again, but if, if it wasn't, if there wasn't a group of other people or if his spouse wasn't going to be attending, I didn't go. Um, I think that that's probably where my gut instinct started kicking in. However, I yeah. haven't been educated on red flags. Right. And how, so, how, how uh, old were you at this time? Late twenties. Okay. So late twenties, you're starting to have the gut feeling, mm-hmm. but you didn't have it prior to that, right? No, um, I, I, no, no, I didn't. I knew that our family had family secrets and there was a weird dynamic, but it wasn't something to be spoken about. So that's as far as those feelings went. It was just, I knew that we had weird things, but it wasn't to be spoken about. Right. Um, when I rolled into my early thirties, so late twenties, early thirties, um, after the emails of him sending me occasionally were saying that he had inappropriate dreams of me, um, I finally kind of <clears throat> took a bite of that carrot um, that had been dangling in front of me unknowingly. And I had said to him, I was like, <clears throat> I said, oh, gosh, I'm like, like, what do you like what happened or whatever? And then um, he had I, I don't remember his response that I had initially started after that but one day he had asked me for me to send him a picture and so I sent him just me doing a goofy picture most of my pictures people will see is me not doing a traditional like pretty smile um it's like silly faces goofy faces and so I sent a picture of a goofy face and then um he had said something of he's like no maybe more something that would have been in my dream and I complied I complied. Yeah. I sent him a picture and it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it was even more modest than Victoria's secret model. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it but was suggested because is, you could tell. Go ahead. Right. Uh, but that is because of the fact that this conditioning started a long time ago, but that doesn't matter. The, there was conditioning there prior and then continued actually. And it will always pick, start off where, uh, they leave off because of how they do it. Right. Um, so 
so it was the, the pictures just to kind of give some people understanding. And this was very, I was so ashamed. Like I was so ashamed of myself. I didn't even want to address this with counselors when I started therapy. Like I was that ashamed of it. Um, you probably are the third person and now the world knows, and I don't care now. Like it's, it's now I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a state of mind. Of we're, we're calling you Right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I, I, I now believe that if you don't have a voice, how are things going to change and how are people going to get help? If I don't well, speak it, up, how are others going right. to be inspired to speak up for their help? Right. And it's need? empowering. I've noticed that about you. You're getting stronger oh. and stronger almost by the day. Every time I speak up about things that have happened in my life that were toxic um, and I don't do it in a uh, poor me as a victim. I am not a victim. I was a victim when those bad things happened, but I am choosing to not live in that mentality and to stay in there and use that as an excuse to not progress in life. So speaking up has given me strength to move forward. And I, and I pray that it inspires others because other people's stories have been what's inspired me to continue striving forward in my life. So I'm hoping that I'm paying it forward with me sharing my stories. Right. Um, but I did. I sent him uh, I, on two separate occasions that I remember. Um, I've, I've sent him three pictures in my early 30s, but two of them were um, where you could tell that it was like I was wearing um, lingerie, but all you saw was a, some cleavage. There wasn't. It, and like I said, it's, the pictures itself, modesty-wise, was even more modest than bra underwear pictures Picture. that you see. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So it was a lot more modest than that, but it's suggestive because of right. the outfit you can tell is was is was lingerie. Right. And every time okay. I and, and the, the two times I sent it to him, right after I did, I would just like sit there for weeks, like, did I really just do that? Like. I can't believe I just listened to his request. Like I would have told a, a guy who, if they were interested in getting to know me and dating me, I would have told them kick rocks. Like that, yeah. pic, those pictures that were taken were meant for the husband that I ha was divorced from. Like they weren't, you know, I wasn't somebody who just randomly showed pictures of myself to anybody. Right. Right. I'm, and so I, I was, shocked and disappointed and I was disgusted with myself um for listening well, and is, not I mean, understanding why I did yeah it's more of a brainwashing um when we do something like that and believe me when I say you're not the only one but the the conditioning goes beyond you know far beyond just basic conditioning it is total brainwashing and again remember this started when you're very young and shame yeah is always a part of the of what happens and that's kind of what they want that's part of one of their goals for sure is to tear you down completely and shame is one of those ways of doing that for sure now yes and then I felt like I was helping him in a form of a way of having an affair on his wife mm -hmm. and I loved his wife you know and mm -hmm. and so I even addressed that to him too I'm like did your wife know that I sent you that picture? Like, I probably shouldn't have done that. I apologize. And he's like, oh, don't worry. He's like, you don't, he's like, 
And he just, the way he worded things, he didn't say it exactly like this, but the implication that he had was he made it sound like his wife already knew that I sent the picture. She didn't care that they were in an open relationship. And I think that the reason why he was saying it was to make sure that I don't have that, that, that guilty of enough conscience where I would have gone directly to her and said, this is what was said. This is what I did. Well, I'm surprised you didn't say um, she doesn't like you anyway, so it doesn't really matter because one thing they try to do is to definitely divide people up and so that you don't think you have any friends anywhere. But um, So I'm surprised you didn't say something like that. Now let me ask you this, um, Sandy. The bottom line is, is did you – uh, did you feel guilty the first time or the third time that you sent the pictures? Um, the first time I sent a picture, um, it was just a very innocent picture that everybody could see on any social media. Uh-huh. Uh, so it, that, the very first picture, absolutely no guilt. I felt it was right. weird that I would send it to him personally. Yeah. Um, but th- there was no guilt. The other okay. two, I felt both times and I didn't okay. understand after I listened both times why did I do it yeah why? and you know what a lot of there should be a book out on why do I do that because that's exactly <laughs> um you know Lundy has a good uh book on why does he do that but why does a victim do that I, I mean I could write volumes on that one because every every victim that I know they do things like that they do really Things that are out of character for them um, because of how they're diminished or brainwashed, whatever you want to call it, conditioned by their abuser. Um, So you're not alone. I just want to throw that out there. And this is another (laughs) technique that they use as part of the – they condition you to do things that you would not normally do. And after you're done, you're like, why would I I ever do that? Don't worry, I've said right. it. Everyone I know has always said that, too. Every victim that I've ever talked to, they're always like, yeah, I don't know why I did this, but, <laughs> you know, I did this. And you're like, yeah, well, and I don't know why they did it. I don't know why I would do anything that I did, you know. <laughs> and it wasn't, right. I, I, I never sent a dirty picture, but I did things that I wouldn't, that was out of character for me. And so that is, that's a normal thing. And do I know why? Not really. It's just part of the conditioning that they do that you would do something like that. Mm-hmm. It's part of the demeaning process for them too. If they can get you torn down enough, they can start doing whatever they want with you. Well, another thing, so the counselors, because I did finally address it with a counselor. Um, and we're still, like I said, we're at the very beginning of that because um, I've, I've been going to therapy for just under two years and I've been addressing different types of abuse that I've been exposed to, not just because of the one thing that happened with my cousin, but right. other abuse that know, I was exposed to. Right. And I want you to get into that too, because uh, it's not an uncommon um, what you went through uh, the start of your abuse. Um, oh, I don't think any abuse is uncommon. Have a pattern it's, of other abuse. Yeah. Um, but, so start about what age? Let, let's talk about your mother. Was she, was she somewhat abusive when you were growing up? Yes. Um. So my mom had me really young. She got pregnant immediately out of um, out of high school. She was still a teenager. Um. And the first 
four and a half years, we lived under her parents, my grandparents' house. Um, and then when she got engaged, she and I moved out into um, a new place. And then when they were married, a year after they were married, he adopted me. Right. Okay. Um, as a child, while I was living under my grandparents' roof, my grandparents, I would say they are are practically perfect in every way, just like the model <laughs> that Mary Poppins has. Yeah. They, they just were hardworking, humble, God-fearing, church-going people, just loving, kind people. Um, but my mom, she kind of used me um, for attention with, with boys. Um, if she started to like a guy um, and they it started to get semi-serious with her, and then they realized, that there was also, you know, a child involved. So a lot of, a lot of people kind of it scared them away a little bit because there's a big commitment to step in and take on a father role. And then I would kind of get punished by my mom psychologically and emotionally, saying it was my fault that she couldn't have the pick of the like, just pick any guy that she wanted. Um. So there was a lot of sexual, or not sexual, sorry. There was a lot of psychological abuse that started with my mom um, saying hurtful comments like that um, when I was a young child. And that started at about what age? As, I, as memories start. This was before I, even before my mom married my, my adopted father. Right, so that would almost correlate with the abuse that you took by your cousin, would it not? Yes. And so it almost might have been a comfort thing for you. Someone Probably. paying attention, they're older, they really like being with you, they, you know. Yes, okay. and, and I never got any condemning from from the cousin that did the sexual abuse. But I did get right. condemning with my mom. Um, there was a lot of fake masks in front of people. She loved to paint that picture-perfect picture look um, with people. But behind closed doors, there was a lot of anger. Um, she blamed me for her problems. And she would let me know it was my fault that she had the problems that she was having. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was always behind closed doors, where it was just her and I that I would hear those things. And then as I am, um, I continue to get older, like when, after I was adopted, um, to my father, um, the psychological abuse continued and she continued to do it in a way of making it behind closed doors, not in front of everybody else. Um, the worst that she would ever tell outward in front of people is that I was her naughty child. Um, um which is funny because I really wasn't a naughty child um, I, I had a little bit of a sassy mouth sometimes, but, um, when it came to, um, obedience, I, or I, I bent over backwards to pine for love and acceptance by both my mom and my, my adopted father. Right. Um, so I, I, I have more memories of going above and beyond of obedience to win to their approval and affection. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah, and sometimes um, abusers do definitely demean you, and that was demeaning you. And yes. whether it was intentional or unintentional, I, I don't know. But, um, okay, so you had – so did this guy ever like you or share share about the, the – My, my yeah. adopted father? Yeah. Um, at the very beginning when they were dating um, and I started hanging out with him, he just was a lot of fun to be around. He did get impatient easily with me. My mom would just pull me aside and she would just say, he's just never been a dad. He's never been around kids. So you just need to be extra good. And there was a few times where my mom would try to say, well, this is her perspective. She's a kid. You're expecting her to be an adult and behave like an adult when she's a child. But that stopped a couple years into their marriage. Um, a, a pattern that I saw in the relationship with my father um, was that with every sibling that was born after me, I have, I'm the oldest of five, and because of them getting married um, when I was four and a half, five years old, and then I being adopted later, it, they didn't start having children until I was almost six, was the first, and the youngest is 14 years apart from me. So there's there's a lot bigger age gap between me and the other children. Um, right. But I did notice um, a disdain um, feeling he had towards me every time a new child came into the family. Um, and more distance that he put between me and my siblings. Um, and I was given more trials and much harsher discipline than any of my other siblings ever had to go through. And as an adult, I'm so grateful that my siblings did not get exposed to the same level of treatment that I was given. Um, when I was younger, it hurt because it made me feel like Cinderella, that, yeah. that I was isolated, that I was the wicked stepchild. Or the redheaded stepchild of sorts. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I never, I never hated my siblings for them being treated better than me. I was grateful that they didn't go through what I went through. So, oh, what about they don't understand? Yeah, they didn't understand. Um, they, they don't understand as adults why my relationship is as strained as it is, where theirs isn't the same. But they were so much younger than me, they didn't see the treatment in comparison to theirs. Um, I mean, when I was 18, I was out of the house. The youngest child doesn't even remember me living in their home. The second oldest was only 12. So they don't really have fair memories of comparison on discipline. Right, and you know what? This is not uncommon. I'll, sometimes um, children of abuse, the other ones will say there was no abuse in, in that home. And it doesn't matter the age. The abuse didn't happen to them, so therefore it didn't happen. Does that make sense? Sometimes mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. go after one more than another. But that doesn't mean that the other ones don't feel it because you're experiencing it. Sometimes they do feel a little bit of anxiety because of that, but I don't know if that was the case right. in your family. 
Yes. Well, and after I've talked to the therapist, and I, I have um, attended a, a few sessions um, just under a year ago with, with my parents, um, after meeting with my parents in therapy and then private therapy with that same counselor, he ended up telling me that he saw that my mom is very much um, has borderline personality disorder and that most likely my dad is a narcissist. And uh-huh. um, if people do research um, at collegiate level research, that's mm-hmm. actually a really common match um, of marriage. If, if one's a borderline personality disorder to get married to a narcissist and it's, stay married to that person. Yeah, so. that's what you said. Uh, and like I said, my studies doesn't go into that. Um, but I, I will research that because that is pretty interesting. I've never heard of that. But that's a possibility. I don't know, you know. But how mm-hmm. um, interesting that is. But um, that being said, I, I have to agree with your therapist on because of some of the other things that you told me. Um, share with me uh, or share with uh, my my listeners to what you went through as um, you got older, he manipulated you in believing that he wanted to uh, get closer with you to, um, to bond a little bit more and tell us about that. Okay. So physical abuse started happening with my, with my adopted father. Um, when my first sibling, so the second child came into the family, he was a newborn Um, the first incident that happened of physical abuse was my mom had left to go run some errands and my adopted father and I were left with my little brother. My little brother was fussy and my dad was getting frustrated and couldn't calm and soothe his son. So he Mm -hmm. put his son into the, the crib, told him or told me to not touch him. Mind you, I'm I'm in kindergarten. I'm I'm six years old, five and a half, six right. years old, at this time frame, and I remembered the tricks um, that worked on soothing him that my dad hadn't tried. So I just sat by his crib and sang nursery songs to him calmly, and picked up his pacifier and put it in his mouth obeying the command of not touching him mm-hmm. in my mentality, putting the pacifier in his mouth, wasn't touching my brother. So right. I thought I was being very obedient and I wasn't forcing it into his mouth. I was being soothing and he instantly started sucking onto the pacifier and listening to my calm singing and he calmed down. Well, my father came into the room and noticed that I successfully calmed his child that he had tried to calm him down for 30 minutes saw that there was a pacifier in his mouth that he didn't put in there, but that therefore it must have been me because he was too young to have gotten and grabbed the pacifier himself. That angered him that I successfully calmed his child down and that I disobeyed him by quote unquote touching him. He picked me up by my arm and dropped, kicked me like a soccer ball. Oh no. Um, I flew out of the room and hit the wall in the hallway and he screamed at me, letting me know how I was so disobedient. I didn't understand or comprehend for years later um, 
what he meant by my disobedience. Um, that in his mind that that was a form of touching his child. Mm-hmm. And um, either way, it, he was completely out of line to drop kick me like a soccer ball right. and then right. scream at me. Right. Even if I had been six years old and deliberately disobeyed him. It, that is, still that is definitely that. abuse. Right. Right. Um, but that's where the abuse started with my dad, physical abuse. Um, from that time and forward, I what have. What year was that? Ahead. Uh, what year was that? Um, in the 90s. 1990? Oh, it was 1990. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's abuse is still not really understood at that time too much, and it's definitely not mentioned yet. I really didn't Correct. even hear it mentioned at all until about 92 or 93. Right. Um, and... Um, what else was I going to tell you? Okay, so abuse started happening. That was that was the beginning. That was the initiation of physical abuse with him. From that time forward, um, he would abuse me physically approximately about three times a year, maybe four. And it was and it, it was always your fault, it, right? Oh, I mean, he he always blamed was, you, and yes. uh, he never apologized for how he mistreated you, right? No, never. Right. Never. It was, it, he, right. He's never, the closest thing to an apology that he has ever given me is, I'm sorry that that's how you feel. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, that a, was said, and that was, that was, that was only said because it was in a counseling, court-ordered counseling session that he used those words. He wouldn't admit in their what he did to me to cause me to feel that way. There was never admission of what he did wrong. Um, It was just, I'm sorry that that's how you feel. Wow. So that's the closest, that's the closest to an apology I had ever gotten from him. Um, And the abuse continued uh, growing up. There was things that he did to me that um, where I had a near drowning experience. I was out swimming just with him. At this point, there was we had I had two siblings younger than me, um, and I went swimming with him. And he kept taking more steps away from me and more steps away from me. And I told him, I said, my arms are tired. I can't keep swimming. I can't keep swimming. I'm going to drown. And he let me. He let me sink to the ground. And then he pulled me back up and then said, okay, now go do it again. And I started crying and I clenched to him and I said, I'm scared. I can't. I don't want to. I don't want to. And he made me multiple times over and over and over again, keep swimming until I would drown. And I'd be sunk under the ground, underwater, and he'd let me sit there under the water, me convinced that I, that I, that I was dead, that I was going to die. And then he'd pull me back up, and he would get mad at me if I cried. Oh, no. I learned that, I learned as growing up that if I cried, he would shut down. Um, and I wasn't, I'm not allowed to have emotions. Yeah. And if my feelings were, dis, were dis, in disagreement of his feelings, he was angry and we were done with our conversation. Wow. So expressing my feelings was in his, in his mind, um, the ultimate betrayal um, and awful. 
Um, so growing up, uh, there was another incident that, you know, he punched me in the sternum several times on the way to school, mm. knocking the wind out of me, having a bruised sternum for weeks after. There was another incident that he got mad at me and pushed me down a set of rambler stairs. So what, there's 20 steps or so. And then he came running after me after I pushed me down the stairs to continue with more abuse by trying to punch me. Um, that was the only time I ever tried to run away from home was because I thought I was going to be a dead person if I stayed where he would continue to punch me. So I, I did the flight thing. Um, did you as, ever go to DCFS or did anyone go to DCFS on your behalf? As a child, no. And I didn't know that I could speak up about this. I didn't know that this was different from other households. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, when I was late 16, early 17 time frame, we moved from one city to another city. Um, and I found out that, so I was, a, I was a, like the top babysitter for our local town. I babysat for lots of people and I was the regular babysitter for, um, for that area. And there were multiple people there that I was babysitting for who recognized signs that I didn't know were signs of abuse. And as I became an adult, I learned from them as I was being baby, when I was a babysitter for them, that they had gone on their out of their way and met with my mom and said, you know, you you say your daughter's just so naughty and that she's so out of control that she's just so well behaved in my home. Is it possible that maybe she just needs to come stay live with us for like a semester or for the summer? You know, can, is there anything that we can do to help? Anytime somebody in my life stepped in and made those kind of conversations with my mother, my mom immediately would alienate me from that person. I can think of five different families in that town that 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 happened with. And then I can also think of a small handful of aunts and uncles that had similar situations while I was in my teens. But again, I didn't understand that they were recognizing that I was being abused and mistreated at home. Um, and part of the one of the big reasons why they moved out of that town was because things were becoming too obvious to others. And my mom didn't like it, so she insisted that we move to a different town. Um, when we moved into the different town, and my my family did what's called family home evening. So every Monday we'd get together and we would have um, a spiritual educational um, talk about scriptures and learn something new in the in the scriptures. And then we'd do a family friendly activity and have a treat. Well, during that family home evening, my dad had demanded that I have something done for the following Sunday for church. Um, and I had told him, Hey, can I, instead of having it be done tomorrow and prepped for this 15 minute talk, can I have it done on Wednesday? Because I have an AP, um, chemistry class, um, and I'm taking my first chemistry test and AP is above my level, but I was put into that class and I'm like, I, I need to prepare for this test. 
he got extremely angry during family home evening and took that as horrible, nasty back talk and went and punched, went to punch me in the face. I saw that what he was going to do, I tried to dodge the punch from the face. He still hit the side of my cheek and my ear. And then the back of his hand landed onto the, 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 the reclining chair that I was in and the chair and I slipped upside down and the chair we had only owned for like two weeks, three weeks, because we were in a brand new home. Like, and you've purchased the new furniture with it at the same time. And the recliner was broken and that made him even more angry. So he went to come after me to continue with more punching because the chair broke and my mom, and that was the first time where he had done it in front of the whole family and in front of my mom. And so my mom jumped in to step in and intervene. And then he picked her up and walked towards the banister in our house and start, went to start dangling her over the banister. I called 911, told 911, my dad just hurt me. He's now going to drop my mom over the banister. He's dangling her over right now. She can't breathe because of how, how tight of a squeeze he's got across her chest. If you don't get here quick, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> and came, they, the police came. That was the first time the police ever got involved um, in our household. Um, and it was because I was defending my mother. Um, by the time the police got there, um, my dad had convinced my mom that if he got a conviction with domestic violence associated to it, that he would lose his career and that we would lose the home and the lifestyle that we had. And so he had convinced my mom that the story needed to be changed and that I blew things out of proportion and I was making things up. Oh my the gosh. Officer didn't, the officer did, um, and, and it's called an arrest on your own accord, so they didn't book him into a jail, but he was asked to leave the home and he was supposed to have a minimum of two weeks of being away from the home. Well, he was only gone for hours and mm-hmm. he came back to the house. And my mom told me, you can't be here. Your dad wants to be here. It's his home. And so you need to leave. So I left. How old are you? Uh, 16 and a half. Wow. So I left. Um, and I, from that day forward, tried to be away from the home as long as possible. I was there for the necessary chores, um, dinner, church, um, and outside of that, I was gone as long as I possibly could be. But my parents were so upset with me because of calling the police and possibly putting my dad in a situation to lose his job and our home and our lifestyle that, um, as retaliation, they chose to start calling the police on me. They called the police on me 11 times in nine months. They demanded to the police to send me to detention centers, but I wasn't a bad kid. I didn't break curfew. I did my homework. I wasn't a straight A student, but I still did my homework. I was providing my own school clothes and toiletries 
feminine hygiene products since 12 years old. I was a very responsible, hardworking kid. Uh, like I said, I never even, I never snuck out of home. I never broke curfew. Like I just was a good kid. And so yeah. when the police would show up, they would tell my parents, well, we can't do anything about it. Like, and we can't bring her to these detention centers and trust me, a vulnerable teenager, you don't want her going to those detention centers because you don't want her to be influenced by the ones that are truly troubled teenagers. You don't want her to become a life of crime. Yeah, but you know what? That and, is actually what they um, what they did was uh, normal. They were turning um, what you did, the truth that you did towards them, and created lies and manipulation to hurt you in any way they could. That is very, mm-hmm. very um, a tool definitely used by abusers. Yes. Well, um, after I think it was about the seventh time right around there of the cops coming. Um, The responding officer happened to be nine times out of 10, 90% of the time, it was the same female officer and her backup officer was also 90% of the time, the same person. Hey, out of the 11 times that was called, there was only two or three times it wasn't them that showed up. Um, What they ended up doing is they would take me um, and remove me from the home, but I went out with them working, and they would take their lunch breaks, and they would pay for my meal, and meanwhile, my parents are thinking that I'm in a detention center, and then they would drop me off, yeah, they would drop me off at um, this home somewhere in Farmington, that was set up for, you know, troubled teens to just be there for an hour or two until parents could come pick them up. Usually it was just because they got caught, you know, skipping school or they yeah, got caught running away from home. And, and so it wasn't like a place of a detention. Like for, it was just a place just for the, the teens to sit and hang out for a half hour to a couple of hours until parents could come get them. And they would drop me off less than 30 minutes before my parents were scheduled to come pick me up and then they would leave. Um, by the seventh of time that they met with me, they brought me out to a local restaurant, handed me paperwork on emancipation, told me to go find um, an adult that I was, I trusted that would keep this in confidence and help me fill out the paperwork to send to, submit to the courts for, to emancipate. And I didn't even know what that meant. They had explained to me what it meant and how the process would work. So when I finally was able to go talk to someone to help mentor me on filling out the paperwork to submit it to the courts, we found out that the pro, by the time, if the courts would grant it, I was going to be graduating about a month or two later from high school. Yeah. So by then it was kind of pointless to push forward because I was already going to be free a month or two later. Right. Um, so I didn't ever end up following through with the emancipation paperwork. Um, but even the police departments, the two police departments that were regularly involved in those 911 calls saw the pattern and the 
the history that was there. Um, and actually, because of that, I'm actually really good friends with one of them and have a good association relationship with another. But the other one, I've, as an adult, 20, you know, 15, 20 years later, I now hang out with him on a regular basis. But back then I didn't because it was not appropriate as a minor to be hanging out with this officer. But right. 20 years later, we've become good friends. Oh wow! So and the awesome. and the female officer, she still recognizes me to this day when I ran into her, and um, she's she and I have a good relationship. Just it's more on an association level. For the other one, I consider a dear friend. So what they but, used law enforcement for was a threat to, uh, against you of you know you're gonna live in jail if we have anything else to do with it. So it was, right. it was a threat. They, so it wasn't a threat because the cops caught on. Right. Uh, they picked up that the what was happening was that they were that my my dad's goal more than likely because of course he wasn't going to admit this was his intent, but more than likely the goal was to prove to the courts that my dad was not the problem in the home and that his charges could be done in a plea in abeyance and dropped. Um, yeah. after probation, like a period of probation, and that I was the, the troubled teen. Right. Um, we were court-ordered to go to counseling. My parents fired five counselors in that year of counseling that we were ordered to oh, have. Because, because they didn't have the problem you did. Correct. We went through five counselors in that year of counseling. I um I was a typical teenager where I was reluctant. I didn't want to go. I was being forced to do something I didn't really want to be there for. So the first two or three sessions, I kind of had a little bit of that resistance attitude. But I recognized that it is what it is. I have to do it. There's no point of fighting it. So I might as well comply. So I started opening up, talking to the counselors about what was going on in the home. They would give me um, tools to practice and use at home. I would follow through with those tools. I'd go back and report to the counselor what I did in, you know, this scenario or this situation. And they were teaching me tools on difference between passive aggressive versus um, assertive is the biggest things that I remember learning when I was younger. And they recognized that I was making my part in doing what I was supposed to do as a teenager in the family situation, but my parents weren't. And when the counselors would tell my parents, okay, well, she's done what she's supposed to do. What about you guys? Yeah. They would become angry. And we got a new counselor. And there was two counselors of the five that I distinctly remember. Um, one was in South Ogden and the other one was in Leighton that we met with. And they both told my parents, um, what, if, what about her going and living some, with someone that you love and trust? like a a family member or a good friend. Can she live with them for a while? Sometimes teenagers need mentorship and live temporarily away from the home. And of course my parents didn't like that because they didn't want other people to know of what was happening in their home. Right. So counseling never was a successful thing that happened in our home because they constantly fired the, the therapists. 
<laughs> and did not like to be and and didn't like to be told that they were there were things that they should be working on themselves too. Yeah. Yeah. So, um the abuse did taper off a lot as an adult because I moved out at 18. Um there was an incident where I temporarily moved back to my parents' house. I wanted to surprise them with telling them that I was going to um, for Christmas, their Christmas gift, I was going to surprise them with showing them paperwork saying that I was going to do a service mission, um, for our church and that I was going to be gone for 18 months. Mm -hmm. And I was just waiting for the paperwork to be completely finalized and then to mail it off to me. And then I was going to wrap it up and give that to them for them for their Christmas because, um, Church was just a huge, huge, huge thing for my parents. Mm -hmm. And I was still in that mentality of doing whatever I could to get their approval and their acceptance and their love. And I had only been with them for about two weeks. And when I was up meeting with my bishop, getting the paperwork filled out, I had come home 15 minutes too late from their curfew that they had given me. I apologized. Now, mind you, I'm almost 21 at this point in my life. Um, And I apologized when I came home and told them, sorry, I'm, you know, 15 minutes late. I, my appointment with the Bishop ran late and I saw on the countertop um, a handwritten contract from my parents that was drafted by them saying Mm -hmm. that I could not break curfew, that I had to be home by a certain time. It didn't matter if what the excuse was, that if I was not in the hospital bleeding, then it didn't matter if it was for work or for church, I had to be home at that time. And at that time, I burst into tears because I was was running a small – women's clothing store and it was Christmas season. And so I am their curfew of 10 o'clock. I was going to break it every time I was scheduled to close. And I had appointments with the Bishop and I thought that maybe he would, they'd have a little bit more empathy, empathy and understanding that if you have an appointment that runs later and it's with the church, they would understand. And so I burst into tears and I just told him, I said, you're setting me up for failure with this contract. I'm going to be violating the contract tomorrow if I sign it tonight because I'm, I'm on the closing shift for work tomorrow. It's Christmas season, so the hours are not standard hours, which I would already be breaking the curfew with that anyway on a closing shift, but it's extended. And, like, is there any way that there can be understanding that if I'm going to work or if it's for church that, you know, I get an extra half hour of drive time to get back home as soon as I can leave. Like, and my dad set his timer on his watch and he says, okay, you have five minutes to get out of my house. If you're not going to sign that contract and if you're going to break it tomorrow, get out of my home tonight. You have five minutes. And Mm. I grabbed my, grabbed a duffel bag of items and grabbed an award that I had received from the state of Utah a couple years before that. Um, and the next thing I know is I'm trying to arrange things in my car 
to hurry and get out of their home. And when he set a timer on his watch, I knew he meant business. He didn't mean five minutes and allow me 15, 20 minutes. He really meant five minutes, get out. So I was trying to hurry as fast as I could. Next thing I know, my dad's pulling me out of my car and he repeatedly slammed me into the car, knocking the wind out of me and said, what have you stolen? And I Mm. had no idea what he was talking about. And then I see that my mom's on the phone and then I see police officers show up. My mom had called the police, had told my dad that I was stealing things from their home. Come to find out what my mom had told the police that I had stolen from them was the award that I received from the state of Utah mm-hmm. that had my name on it, that it was a plaque and it was mount- and it was framed and there was a certification and a medal that was on- attached to it. And there was um, a hired photographer that came to the award ceremony that they do every year and he took pictures. And my parents, uh, my mom had told the officers that I had stolen her decorations and the decorations was the award and the pictures that the, the, the state of Utah had provided from them. It wasn't my, per- my parents' personal pictures. It was the ones from the photographer. Um, and I had to surrender the pictures. Because it was a he said, she said. We had no proof on me to prove that it was done by the photographer that was hired by the state of Utah. Um, And I was able to keep the actual award that had my name on it. Um, Wow. and, and, And that was the first abuse as an adult that I recognized that was carrying on with the family. The power and control was so obvious right then, right? Yes, yes. And of course, because of that happening, I wasn't able to go serve that 18-month service mission because in order for you to do that, you have to make sure that you don't have any contracts with like leases um, and you have to be debt-free so you can attend to these things. And so the only way I would have been able to attend is if I didn't have a lease um, for an apartment and I would have had to have either sold my car or paid it off before I left on that service mission. And um, because I got kicked out of their home that night, I wasn't able to um, go serve that mission. So, and for my parents to cover their tracks on that situation, my mom turned around and told my aunts and uncles and cousins and pretty much anybody who would give her the time of day to listen that I was living in sin and I went and moved in with a man um, right. Yeah, um, I was trying to steal this, from uh, them. Go ahead. Jumpy kind of got their her number, or did they really just believe her a lot? Oh no, um, my aunts and uncles and cousins had no reason not to believe them. Yeah, because they you suck know? a man like no other, don't they? If this is well, not yeah, uncommon. Well, and- abusers turn um, people around the victim against the victim. This is a very common tool. I, I, kind of, for anybody who's listening, you just think about it in this situation. Like, you think of your adult sibling who's had a child that you have labeled them as your troublemaker, sassy, naughty child their whole life, and they say, 
I'm so worried about my daughter. She just was so angry. I had to call the police. She was trying to steal from me, and now she's living in sin with this man. (laughs) You naturally would there's no reason for you not to believe that person. Right. So my mom, my mom was able to, um, and with her, with her disorder of borderline personality disorder, which is a learned behavior. It's just, it's a, it's a professional disorder. Right. Uh, she had, she's learned how to develop this disorder from childhood on up. And so by the time I'm, you know, 20, 21, years old she's She's perfected it yeah she's perfected it the only way people are going to recognize it is if they um became a victim of her attacks of her lies of her twisted versions of stories of her version of reality right um um, or if she become if they become targeted as a quote-unquote threat in her life they are, right. Those are the only way that people are going to recognize that she's not mentally well. Right. So, so um, during that time be, is go ahead, go ahead. We're going to have to be cutting this uh, Absolutely. short. Yeah, okay. A few more minutes, but um, kind of wrap up things. How um, what well, we've talked about the tools that they've used, the manipulation, the um, the power and control, of course, the threats. Um, uh, of course, in your cousin, it'd be more the persuasion through kindness, which is the worst part. But anyway, um, what other ones do you recall that we discussed? Well, and another one also was my cousin, the persuasion of kindness. It wasn't just that. He also, when he after he was able to persuade you, he had you doing things that you knew the so, socially, spiritually, mentally, so, society telling you it's wrong. Right. Um, that the conditioning, of course, that's what it would have taken. That you are so embarrassed by it that you keep your shame. mouth shut of a shame. Shame, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So for my cousin, it was more. For my cousin, it was more of my mouth stayed shut because of shame. Right. Right. With my yeah. parents, it was more of trying to gain their love and acceptance and believing the things that they said about me, that I was a naughty child and that I was terrible and that I just never could do anything good enough. Right. And you know what? Um, I am pretty impressed with how well you turned out. I have to tell you that you've done really well for yourself, despite what you were up against, but maybe it made you stronger. Who knows? You know, Everybody has a choice when when hardships come their way or when trials come their way. You have a choice. You can either remain stuck in it in in the victim mentality and woe is me and the world is out to get to you, mm-hmm. um, or use it as a crutch of oh well I couldn't show up to work today and every day and I can't hold a job every day because I'm a victim of this, or you can say that's part of my life it still sometimes affects me today, but I am not a victim anymore. I was a victim then, but I am not a victim now and I'm going to conquer this. And so my mentality has been, what can I learn from it? And so what I choose to learn from it is what not to do for my family, for my, my beautiful kids 
um, healthy boundaries with relationships that I have currently. And when I say relationships, that's coworkers, friends, family, uh, dating. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just any kind of relationship. Um, and then I feel inspired to um, help others who can relate in their own lives on how to get help and how to get educated. Or if someone knows someone who's being abused, to help inspire them to get education on how to help the person who is being abused. Because most people who have good intent to help usually isn't helping in the right way and it causes more problems and more damage. So I, I want to help them understand the education on the, the healthiest way to help someone as well. Right. right. Thank you so much for coming on, Sandy. Um, I'm going to call you, you later as we I'd always love talk that. anyway, but um, yeah. About the other topic we're talking about, I would also like to discuss that with you, if that's okay. Please, yes. I really want to finish talking to you about the other topic we were talking about earlier. Yes. I do, I do. I would love to. Okay, and I'm going to have a public service announcement, and so everyone, hold on. Unexpected reactions to smart financial decisions brought to you by FeedThePig.org. Well, I finally did it. I improved my credit score. You're kidding, right? Uh, no. How are we supposed to be the bad boys of Electrosynth Pop if you're out there being responsible? The band is about to be discovered. This is our year. Uh, yeah, you've been saying that for a while now. You think anyone in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was worried about their credit score? I never really thought that Of we were... course they weren't. Rock stars aren't supposed to think about that kind of stuff. We're supposed to think about how many guitars we've smashed, write aggressively sensitive power ballads, start questionable fashion trends, tragically break up and blame creative differences. All right, all right, just... I thought maybe it was time to take control of my finances, you know? Start using a budget. Get out of debt. Set some goals. A budget? Debt? Set some goals? Listen, I knew that we'd have our creative differences, but I was hoping they'd involve a little more scandal. When it comes to financial stability, don't get left behind. Get tools and tips for saving at feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Making a Difference About Domestic Violence and Abuse with your host, Shereen Rice, on the CWR Talk Network. Welcome back. This is Shereen as I'm starting to close my show. I just wanted to thank Sandy for coming on our show and sharing um, her experiences by... um, helping us also understand what the tools that abusers use by her example of what had happened to her. When she was talking to me the other day, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's so obvious. Look at all these things. And she had so many uh, different types of experiences uh, that I thought it was an excellent example of uh, a crosscut of a lot of different experiences or uh, tools that um, abusers use. I want to thank my listeners for listening tonight and learning how to help yourself or help others about about the tools of um, of abuse and being able to identify them a little bit more. They call them red flags, but I'll be honest with you, I never saw a red flag before I understood abuse. And so I'm hoping that I'm teaching you a little bit so that you'll understand um, the tools of abusers or what we also call 
red flags. So we'll be getting together again next week at 6 o'clock Pacific time to learn more about domestic violence and abuse. Next week I will have Kevin from Hawaii sharing with us about male domestic violence. And he's uh, one of the guys that's in charge of the Men's March Against Violence in Hawaii. So please stay safe. Join us next week and have a great week. Good night.